Many alarming headlines concern the comeback and increase of anti-Semitism, something we never dreamed possible after the repulsive and unspeakable horrors of the Holocaust. History is tragically repeating itself, but not without resistance this time in many evangelical Christian communities. In 1965, the Second Vatican Council took a new, less adversarial approach to the relationship between the Church and Rabbinic Judaism. Now, in our times, a half century later, many cutting-edge Orthodox rabbis have dared to respond with an amazing reevaluation and positive view of Christianity. Their statement, to do the will of our Father in Heaven, is very encouraging and compelling. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dard. On the grounds of St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia is a sculpture called Ecclesia et Synagoga, meaning church and synagogue. It's a pair of bronze figures personifying the Christian church and the Jewish synagogue in dialogue and harmony. The two are sitting side by side rather than adversaries. The sculpture commemorates the Second Vatical Council's revolutionary positive stance on Judaism. The sculpture was dedicated on the 50th anniversary of the Vatican's declaration, known by the first words of the document, Nostra Aetate, Latin for In Our Time. Both personifications of synagogue and church wear crowns and hold their respective scriptures, suggesting that we should learn from one another. Indeed, Christians are enjoined in the New Testament to honor our elders in the faith. And why? Because we owe them a debt for the scriptures and because the Jews' covenant with God has never been revoked. The Apostle Paul, himself a rabbi, wrote in Romans chapter 11 that his Jewish brethren are greatly beloved for the sake of the fathers. And Paul maintained that the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. The sculpture depicting camaraderie between synagogue and church is quite a departure from art on cathedrals and churches throughout history. In the past, two opposing female figures representing church and synagogue often appeared on either side of a church portal. The most famous example from Strasbourg Cathedral in France emphasizing the defeat of the synagogue and supremacy of the church. That's replacement theology, plain and simple. These medieval figures reflect the erroneous belief of replacement theology, sometimes called supersessionism, suggesting that Judaism had been surpassed and was thus irrelevant. But nothing could be more short-sighted because the scriptures foretold the regathering of Israel in the last days prior 
to the second coming of King Messiah Jesus. Despite the bitter past, despite the long history of enmity between Christians and Jews, in 2015, much to my amazement and rejoicing, the Center for Jewish-Christian Understanding and Cooperation in Israel published a statement toward a partnership between Jews and Christians with the significant title, To Do the Will of Our Father in Heaven. This orthodox rabbinic statement on Christianity is revolutionary and was initially signed by over 25 prominent orthodox rabbis in Israel, the United States, and Europe, and now has well over 100 signatories and growing. Many of these orthodox leaders are considered pariahs for having signed the statement, yet they believe they're doing the will of the Father in heaven by engaging in constructive dialogue, they believe, for the good of mankind. The rabbinic statement references the teachings of the Sephardic Jewish philosopher who became one of the most prolific and influential Torah scholars of the Middle Ages, Moses Machmanides, and also Yehuda Halevi, one of the greatest Hebrew poets. Their statement acknowledges Christianity as an emergence of divine will in human history and a gift to the nations. The 2015 rabbinic document also cites an 18th century rabbi, Jacob Emden, regarding the double goodness that he said Jesus brought to the world. I researched Rabbi Jacob Emden, and I learned that he believed through Christianity, the knowledge of God would spread throughout the earth. Rabbi Emden praised the ethical teachings of Christianity as beneficial in removing idolatry and giving Gentiles a moral doctrine. According to the founding chief rabbi of the town of Ephrat in Israel, and also he's the founder of the Center for Jewish-Christian Understanding and Cooperation, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, the real importance of the 2015 Orthodox Statement is that it calls for a fraternal partnership between Jewish and Christian religious leaders, while also acknowledging the positive theological status of the Christian faith. Rabbi Riskin has long believed that both Jews and Christians must be in the forefront of teaching basic moral values to the world. Other Jews criticize the rabbinic statement as a breach of their traditions and worldview of Judaism. Nevertheless, what has happened in our generation was groundbreaking, and I want to give some fascinating background. The document Nostra Aetate was overwhelmingly passed in 1965 by a vote of 2,221 bishops to 88 bishops who were assembled at the Second Vatican Council. How did this come about? A sympathetic pope at the time, Pope John XXIII, endorsed the creation of a document which would address a new, less adversarial approach to the relationship between the Catholic Church and rabbinic Judaism. The Pope followed the lead of a highly respected Jewish historian in France who was associated with the International Council of Christians and Jews. His name was Jules Isaac, and he claimed that Christian anti-Semitism had paved the way for the Holocaust. As can be imagined, this new initiative was met with 
opposition. But after numerous drafts, compromises were made and a positive statement was added on Islam to mollify security concerns of Arab Christians. The specific origins of the Vatican's conciliatory statement can be traced directly to a meeting between Pope John XXIII and the historian Jules Isaac in 1960. In light of the Holocaust, Isaac requested a document to be issued at the Second Vatican Council that would distance the church from preaching the concept of deicide. That's the notion that the Jewish people would always be collectively responsible for the killing of Jesus, a notion which had tragically resulted in what Isaac called Christian anti-Semitism. While Isaac was a principal contributor at the International Emergency Conference on Antisemitism in Salzburg, Switzerland, the purpose of the Salzburg Conference was to discern reasons for the antisemitism which existed even after World War II, and then to develop measures to combat it. The ten points of the conference were greatly influenced by Isaac's manuscript, and I want to share these ten points because they're more relevant than ever. Number one, remember that one God speaks to us all through both testaments of the Bible. Two, Remember that Jesus was born of a Jewish mother of the seed of David and the people of Israel and that his everlasting love and forgiveness embraces his own people as well as the whole world. Three, remember that the first disciples, the apostles, and the first martyrs were Jews. Four, remember that the fundamental commandment of Christianity to love God and one's neighbor proclaimed already in the Hebrew Bible and confirmed by Jesus is binding upon both Christians and Jews in all human relationships without any exception. Five, avoid distorting or misrepresenting biblical or post-biblical Judaism with the object of extolling Christianity. Six, avoid the use of the word Jews in the exclusive sense of the enemies of Jesus and avoid the words, the enemies of Jesus, to designate the whole Jewish people. Seven, avoid presenting the passion of Jesus in such a way as to bring the odium of the killing of Jesus upon all Jews or upon Jews alone. It was only a section of the Jews in Jerusalem who demanded the death of Jesus, and the Christian message has always been that it was the sins of mankind which were exemplified by those Jews and the sins in which all men share that brought Christ to the cross. Eight, avoid referring to the scriptural curses or the cry of a raging mob, his blood be upon us and our children, without remembering that this cry should not count against the infinitely more weighty words of our Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Nine, avoid promoting the superstitious notion that the Jewish people are reprobate, accursed, reserved for a destiny of suffering. And number 10, avoid speaking of the Jews as if the first members of the church had not been Jews. The prophetic movement of Jews and Christians becoming modern-day allies 
owes an incalculable debt to the sufferings of Jules Isaac, to his writings, and to his God-given ability to reach out to Christians in what my friend Josh Reinstein, director of the Israel Allies Foundation, calls faith-based diplomacy. Thankfully, in the providence of God, Isaac had a friend in the Pope who was already favorably disposed to Isaac's suggestion for a document amicable toward the Jewish people. The Pope, in fact, had enjoyed a long relationship with Jewish communities, and after being elected to the papacy in 1958, John XXIII started to make reforms. For example, he removed from the Good Friday prayer for the Jews the term perfidious, meaning faithless and treacherous. Well, as I said, the spiritual warfare surrounding the Second Vatican Council was huge. Under a pseudonym, a document was circulated called The Plot Against the Church, which was allegedly funded by Egypt and elements in northern Italy. It was an 800-page polemic of libels, claiming that since the times of Jesus for 1,900 years, Judaism had worked to overthrow Christianity and the Catholic Church. Part 4 of the Vatican Council's document, known as Nostra Aetate, refers specifically to the Jewish people. Repeated in the text is the traditional teaching that the Catholic Church sees the beginnings of its faith in ancient Israel's patriarchs and prophets. The text also notes that the apostles and many of the early disciples of Jesus had their roots, of course, in Judaism, despite the fact that Jerusalem did not recognize the time of her visitation, nor did the Jews in large number accept the gospel. The most significant departure in the document from previous approaches was that, quote, this sacred synod wants to foster and recommend mutual understanding and respect, end quote. Many documents of the Second Vatical Council contain textual ambiguities due to the process of compromise between the factions of liberal and conservative churchmen. The final text concerning the controversy of deicide deliberately avoided mention of the word. The document states that what happened to Jesus cannot be charged against all the Jews without distinction, then alive, nor against the Jews of today. On the question of anti-Semitism, the document says that the church decries hatred and persecutions, displays of anti-Semitism directed against Jews at any time and by anyone. The document also states that all men are created in God's image and that the church reproves as foreign to the mind of Christ any discrimination against men or harassment of them because of their race, color, condition of life, or religion. This changing of attitude paved the way for a dialogue in the decades following in a manner which was not previously commonplace. Well, to mark the 50th anniversary of the groundbreaking document of the Second Vatican II and the Church's new theological framework, the Vatican's Commission for Religious Relations with Jews released a new document exploring the unresolved theological questions. The new declaration was suitably entitled, quoting Romans 11:29. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. 
and stated that the fundamental esteem for Judaism expressed in the Second Vatican Council has enabled communities that once faced one another with skepticism to become, step by step over the years, reliable partners and even good friends, capable of weathering crises together and negotiating conflicts positively. I found it interesting that the Vatican's Commission for Religious Relationships with Jews has stated that the permanence of Israel is to be perceived as an historic fact and a sign to be interpreted within God's design. A third document of the Commission for Religious Relationships with the Jews was presented to the public in 1998. It dealt with the Holocaust, Shoah in Hebrew, under the title, We Remember, a reflection on the Shoah. The text delivered the harsh but accurate judgment that the balance of the 2,000-year relationship between Jews and Christians is regrettably negative. In my review today of changes in Jewish-Christian relations over the past five decades or so, it should be mentioned that former Pope John Paul II succeeded in further fostering and deepening dialogue between Jews and Christians through his own unique and compelling personal gestures. John Paul, the Polish Pope, was the first Pope to visit the former concentration camp of Auschwitz-Birkenau, where he prayed for victims of the Shoah. And he visited the synagogue in Rome to express his solidarity with the Jewish community. In an historical pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the year 2000, Pope John Paul was a guest of the State of Israel where he paid a visit to both chief rabbis. And significantly, he was the first pope to pray at the Western Wall where he left a prayer that is now held in the archives of Jerusalem's Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem. The Pope's prayer stated, God of our fathers, you chose Abraham and his descendants to bring your name to the nations. We are deeply saddened by the behavior of those who, in the course of history, have caused these children of yours to suffer and asking your forgiveness we wish to commit ourselves to genuine brotherhood with the people of the covenant. That statement, the people of the covenant, is an accurate statement because God has never revoked his covenant with the chosen people, the Jews. Since 2002, meetings have been conducted annually, taking place in Rome and Jerusalem alternatively. After each meeting, a joint declaration is published testifying to the richness of the common spiritual heritage of Judaism and Christianity, and looking forward to valuable treasures still to be unearthed. Now to summarize, as one brought up in the Protestant Church, I've nevertheless found it important today to emphasize the remedial actions of the Catholic Church, because prior to the Second Vatican Council's new direction up to that time, Without a lot of interaction to the Jewish people, we were all considered to be Catholics. In the Jewish collective mind, we were all one block of Christians. We were all Catholics. So something had to give. In the meantime, in my opinion, 
Evangelicals have greatly benefited in taking Jewish-Christian dialogue to new levels, but our efforts would not have been possible without the groundwork laid by a conciliatory Catholic Church. This I have to commend despite all of its unscriptural teachings and traditions. Having engaged with the Jewish people now for many decades, I can truly testify that bonds of genuine friendship have been forged and have proven to be stable. So it's now possible to discuss sensitive and controversial subjects together without tension or suspicion. And here's an example. Recently, I participated in a fascinating Zoom that brought together Jews and Christians. And this Zoom was sponsored by the Center for Jewish-Christian Understanding and Cooperation. The title of the Zoom was The Current State of the Jewish-Christian Relationship. And the agenda highlighted the ongoing and increasing signatories to the rabbinical statement of 2015 that had essentially commended Christianity and Jesus. Fascinating to me was that an Israeli clinical psychologist was among participants, along with several prominent rabbis. The clinical psychologist was asked to comment, and he commended the 2015 rabbinic declaration as brave and a cause of rejoicing, and also, he said, as a crisis in Jewish identity, which he said is a good thing, explaining that we all need crises. After all, Abraham had his, breaking with idols and so on. The psychologist noted that we're still only at the beginning of our relationship with Christians. But if Jews are truly to be allies of the Christians, he said it means we have to reconsider fundamental aspects of our Jewish identity. For example, to what extent is kosher dietary laws only about holiness? If Christians are allies, he asked, should we reconsider some aspects of kashrut, those specifically designed to set us apart from others? He said, I'm grateful for the step and the crisis that this declaration is causing us. It means it'll take us forward, God willing. This movement, he said, has to become mainstream. He said, Jews are understandably resistant to this new relationship because it's very personal. Jewish identity with history is Jewish strength, but it's also, he said, a ball and chain, adding that we have to put our minds to furthering this cause. Although participants on the Zoom were not Messianic Christians, they were in fact Orthodox Jews. Nevertheless, the level of discussion reminded me of the Jerusalem Council issues that were hashed out in the New Testament in Acts chapter 15, concerning the entry of Gentile believers into what was then the Jewish church. Don't forget, the early church was originally exclusively Jewish. And so the apostles had to decide how to admit foreign Gentiles when Gentiles were being converted by the Holy Spirit. And so the Jewish apostles graciously decided not to lay upon Gentile believers the burden of keeping 613 Jewish laws. It was a tremendous blessing to be a part of the discussion and to renew some acquaintances. For example, I was impressed by the remarks of Rabbi Pesach Waliki, 
who has spoken previously at one of our ministry's Passover conferences in Jerusalem. It touched my heart when Rabbi Pesach said the rabbinic statement had received a lot of pushback in Jewish circles, but he's confident that this movement of friendship between Jews and Christians is an authentic act of God, especially, he said, because of the title of the Orthodox rabbinic statement, which I believe is very humble, to do the will of our Father in heaven. Let's not lose sight of the fact that the 2015 Breakthrough Statement is the first public Orthodox statement on Christianity since the Catholic Church changed its teachings toward Judaism and the Jewish people in 1965. Citing rabbinic precedents to do the will of our Father articulated a bold vision of appreciation between Jews and Christians. Today, as I noted earlier, and just to repeat, more than 100 Orthodox rabbis, teachers, professors, communal leaders have signed the statement. And some of the most beautiful words in the document, in my opinion, are the following. As did Maimonides and Yehuda Halevi, we acknowledge the emergence of Christianity in human history is neither an accident nor an error, but the willed divine outcome and gift to the nations. Furthermore, and this is particularly gratifying, the rabbinic document includes Jesus amongst their own sages, saying that he strengthened the Torah of Moses majestically. Let's let that sink in. I believe that doing the will of our Father is an ongoing end-time prophetic work of the Holy Spirit, and our ministry is humbled to be a part of it whenever possible. You see, when Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and I believe that will be sooner rather than later, he will rule the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's what the New Testament teaches. And at that time, I believe the Jewish people and Israel will acknowledge that Jesus did, as the rabbinic statement states, majestically uphold the Torah. For at that time when Jesus returns to rule, Isaiah 2.3 will come to pass, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Amen. I'm very aware that there are many adversaries who cannot countenance this great work of the Lord and who oppose it at every turn, both Jews and so-called Christians. But today, it's my hope that you can see how important it is to be a watchman upon the walls of Jerusalem at this strategic time. In the meantime, Daniel 11:32b declares, the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and will do exploits, meaning that will accomplish the works of the Lord, the will of our Father, before his imminent return. I want to draw your attention to our website, exploits.tv, which continually reports on Bible prophecy and end-time events relating to the church in Israel. We invite you to sign up for our weekly Exploits video release, and we have uploaded a library of videos available for you anytime, 24-7, at our Jerusalem Channel app and also at our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site. If you have any questions about this program, feel free to contact me on social media. Until next time, you know me. I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem.
Shalom. I'm Christine Darg. Maranatha.